you know, fast forward to this morning, according to the Daily News, Yahoo News and other news, news organizations, the headline read, Russia, Turkey staged first joint airstrikes against Islamic State in Syria. And that's interesting as well, because we also know in the last days that there's going to be that, that Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel 39 battle coming against Israel to fight against Israel, and that Turkey and Russia are going to join together in, in, in as allies, in a sense, to, to, to operate this. Well, they've never been allies. They've never been allies of each other, and now they're having this joint task where they're coming together uh, you know, to, to, uh, uh, in fact, it says that the article says that nine Russian and eight Turkish planes were part of the first joint air operation in the area around the town of Al-Bayab in the Aleppo region. Uh, the announcement came less than a week after Russia said Moscow and, and Karna Turkey had signed an agreement spelling out mechanisms to coordinate their air forces in Syria when conducting strikes on terrorist targets. I mean, all that to say, you know, if you know your Bible and you've studied end times prophecy, I mean, the stage is set for the destruction of Damascus, as we'll get to in Isaiah chapter 17. The stage is being set for Ezekiel 38, 39, which then tells us the stage is set for the rapture of the church even closer. So I'm excited about that. I couldn't wait to throw it in a study someplace. I just wanted to share that with you because it's exciting things. Now, let's get to Isaiah chapter 8. And uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, tonight to be in your word. To know, Lord, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts and not only give us information, but application in our lives as well. And so we just invite your spirit here, Lord, to teach us, to instruct us. We thank you for this time. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we left, left off last week with the warning of the coming Assyrian invasion coming against uh, Syria and Israel. Now, the southern kingdom, we recognize there's two kingdoms at this time. The southern kingdom of Judah, specifically Jerusalem, was being attacked by an alliance between uh, the king, northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. But they weren't winning. And, and we know they, were, they, they couldn't take Jerusalem. Now, we pointed out last time that we know that they couldn't take Jerusalem at that time. We know because we have God's word, because God said so. But the people at the time, they, they didn't know that. So as the northern kingdom and Syria is coming against uh, Jerusalem, they're worried. They thought they were done for. They thought Jerusalem could easily fall to the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria. So the Lord spoke through Isaiah in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 3. Back up just for a moment. And the Lord said, then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. And he goes on to tell them why he shouldn't be feared or faint-hearted. He says in verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. So they're not going to take Jerusalem. It's not going to stand. They're not going to, the, the Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel will not take over the southern kingdom of Judah. Now that didn't mean that Babylon years later wouldn't attack and take the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity. Only that the current attack wasn't going to be successful against Judah. We also looked at how Isaiah's son shared Jashub's name meant a remnant shall return. Even looking forward to the future uh, fulfillment after Judah would be taken into Babylon, a remnant would return, as we've read in Nehemiah. But there in chapter 7, verse 3, the Lord told Isaiah to take his one boy and go tell Ahaz not to worry about these attacks. Why? Well, because Assyria would be coming down to wipe out Syria and, the, and Israel. 
It's kind of like the, the old cartoon where you see the, the fish and the little fish is right there and you see the big fish coming and it's ready to take the little fish and then a bigger fish comes and takes this other fish. And, and that's kind of what's happening here. God is telling Isaiah, this is how it's going to go down. And it went down just as God's word said. Showing us just how much God is in control of what's going on at all times. Listen to Psalm 121, verse 3 through 5. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He, will keep, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. So, now we come to chapter 8. We continue with the prophecy of Assyria coming down to take out Syria and Israel, as well as their attempt to take out Jerusalem. But we also get introduced to Isaiah's other son. Look at verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Meir Shalal Hashabaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberichiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Meir Shalala Hajbaz. For behold, before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father, my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the kings of Assyria. Now, could you imagine being Isaiah and Mrs. Isaiah and calling their boys for supper? <laughs> hey, Shira, Jaseb, get your brother. Meher Shalah has about it. Supper's ready. You know, I mean, it's like these names are just like crazy. But here's what's interesting. The name Meher Shalal Hazbaz means hastened to pray. P-R-E-Y. In other words, Isaiah was told by the Lord to go to the officials of the community and write out a birth certificate before Mrs. Isaiah was even pregnant with her son's name, which would be Mayor Shalah Hajbaz. And the Lord says, before Mayor could say mommy and daddy, Syria would be wiped out by Assyria, and the Syrians would also overrun Damascus. It's all before, before he even can say mommy and daddy, these things were going to happen. But I think, what a name. You know, what a name. Hastened to pray. It's going to happen. I found a story about Charlie Stink. Charlie Stink was constantly being advised by his friends and co-workers that he should have his name changed. Finally, he agreed and went to court to have the process completed. The next day, back at work, his associate inquired, what did you have your name changed to? He said, I changed it to George Stink. But for the life of me, I can't see what difference it makes. There's something to be said about maintaining a good name. We're going to look at that when we get to chapter 9. There's this poem called Your Family Name that goes like this. You got it from your father. It was all he had to give. So it's yours to use and cherish for as long as you may live. If you lost the watch he gave you, it can always be replaced. But a black mark on your name can never be erased. It was clean the day you took it and worthy name to bear. When he got it from his father, there was no dishonor there. So make sure you guard it wisely. After all is said and done, you'll be glad the name is spotless when you give it to your son. So the Lord says here before Meher, says mommy and daddy, Syria would be wiped out and the Syria and the Syrians would also overrun Damascus. Now look at verse 5. The Lord also spoke to me again saying, Inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in resin and in Ramalia's son, now therefore behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over the channels and go over all his banks. Now this is speaking figuratively. The Assyrians are going to be coming down to take out Syria and Israel. It's going to be like a flood, which indeed did happen. Isaiah says here it's because they refused the waters of Shiloh, or Shiloh, or, or the peace that God offered the northern kingdom. 
They refuse that. See, a peace typified here by this gentle, softly flowing brook that he says their judgment would come like a flood. And we see in verse 7, the waters of the river strong and mighty. In contrast, we see Assyrian. And this evidently is the Euphrates River where Syria was located. These waters come down like a flood. God is giving a message to his people through these two rivers. Man, this coming in like a flood. It's going to happen. It's gonna, they're going to come down. Now, where does that leave Judah, the southern kingdom? Well, verse 8 tells us, Assyria says he will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of the wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourself, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Name Emmanuel means God with us. And, and here, God is saying that when, as it comes to Judah, you know, God is with them. Now, this indeed happened. This whole situation did happen. Ahaz, his son Hezekiah, did see the river reach up to its neck. In other words, the Assyrians, the Assyrians came into Judah like a flood, reaching to their necks, but not overflowing them. Now, the neck would be here. Jerusalem then would be the head. And so what he's saying is, is they didn't overtake Jerusalem. The Syrians were not going to. Now, there are times that I think that in our lives, I think, don't you feel like sometimes, man, we're going through trials up to our necks. And we're going, man, this is going to overwhelm me. This is going to take me down. This, oh, no. Yet the Lord tells us in Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, even though we may go through heated trials and struggles, God, had his, God has his hand on the thermostat. God knows what's best for us. And when it came to Assyria attacking Jerusalem, God's word was proven true. Jot this down, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35 and 36. It says there, And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And the people arose in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained in Nineveh. In other words, God super intervened rather and, 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 and wiped out the Assyrians before they could take over Jerusalem, just as the Lord prophesied here in Isaiah chapter 8. And this reminds me of the, the verse of the year that I quoted last Wednesday. You know, we have Psalm 1830. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He's a shield to all who trust in him. The word of the Lord is proven. We see it played out, you know, at the time, you know, the Judah didn't know what was going to happen, but we see it all laid out in Scripture, and it's proven to us over and over again. Now look at verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The idea of, of Syria and the northern kingdom, these two nations getting together and coming down to fight against Judah was a scary thing. It struck terror in the hearts of the people of Judah. It was really freaking them out. And so the Lord is saying to Isaiah and, and to the people, hey, just forget about this stuff because it's not going to happen. Don't be troubled. And he says in verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. In other words, don't be afraid of what some confederacy might do. Rather, be afraid of what God may do. I mean, isn't that what, what, what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5? 
He said, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. He will be as a sanctuary. See, when you fear God instead of man, he becomes your sanctuary. Now, unfortunately for the kingdom of Judah and Israel, because of their fear of man, they, they had put their trust in man. So instead of, of God being the sanctuary, he becomes a stone of stumbling to them. Look at verse 14. It says, He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now here again is one of those prophecies that we looked at last time that just suddenly jumps out at us, speaking of the Messiah. Even as Jesus uh, became a stumbling stone to the Jew, a rock of offense. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. He says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. We also know that Peter quotes the same verse as well in 1 Peter 2, verse 7, when he says, Therefore, do you who believe he is precious, but those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A dual prophecy here, but this is what the Lord is saying. You know, you, you surrender to the Lord, and, and, and man, he's your rock, he's, he's our strength. But if you don't, man, then you have to face the consequences. So a dual prophecy. Look at verse 15. And many among them shall stumble. They shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord, who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in the Lord. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living, to the law, to the testimony? If they do not speak according to the word, it is because there is no light in them. So again, you have Judah and you have the people and they're freaking out and they're, they're looking to mediums and they're looking to, you know, spiritists to guide them. They're looking to communication with the dead for guidance, for instruction, for wisdom. And God speaks out and says, are you guys nuts? Should not a people seek their God? Why are they seeking the dead on behalf of the living? You know, it amazes me today how many people today that they get involved with that stuff, you know, in spiritism and, and seeking to communicate with spirits and, and the spirits of the dead. And now they actually think that they're actually communicating with, with, with the spirits of dead people. And yet the, the warnings are plentiful in scriptures. Man, those things are, are demonic. Evil spirits pretending to be dead people communicating from beyond the grave. But Isaiah makes an interesting point here. He says, even if they were the real thing, why would you ask them instead of God? I think of there in Luke 24 when the woman went to the tomb after Jesus had died and, and the, the ladies were going to the tomb to anoint his body and an angel appeared to them and said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here but is risen. Just, that's why it's better to seek the mediator rather than a medium, right? Better to, 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 to seek the scriptures than, not, than some seance. Look for the living among the living. Look to the Lord Jesus. But they refused. Verse 20 says they didn't look. They said to the law and to this testimony, if they do not speak according to the word, it is because there is no light in them. They didn't look. And they're not speaking according to God's word. Why? Because they're not looking to the Lord. There's no light in them. They're not listening to the word of God. David said in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
So as we get, get dig into God's word, he lights our way. He shows our way. Psalm 18:28. for you light my lamp. The Lord, my God, will enlighten my darkness. But Isaiah is saying they refuse. They refuse to seek the Lord because there's no light in them. Therefore, look at verse 21 and 22. They will pass through at hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. These final verses reveal the final issue of, of really pursuing a life of disobedience. Instead of looking to the Lord for help, they're looked to, to the sky. They're going to curse their king and their God. And because they, they won't look to the Lord, it says there's only darkness, gloom, and anguish. All because they, they refuse to accept the truthfulness of what Isaiah had said regarding the nation's future hardships. Now, Jesus put it this way in John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me shall not abide in darkness. Isaiah's point, God's point, is that is really those who refuse to come to the light, they're going to continue to stumble around in darkness. They'll become more embittered against both man and God and will not find happiness or satisfaction. But, 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light of season and light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins. Amen. Okay, chapter 9. You'll see why we stopped in chapter 9. Look at verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. So, what we see is this gloom is carrying over from the end of chapter 8. What Isaiah is saying is that the coming invasion from the Assyrians would be terrible for the Jewish people, especially for the northern regions of the Promised Land, the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And afterwards, he says, it's going to get bad for the area beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. But there's hope. Now, the hope wouldn't come but some 700 years later, but this is where we get one of the best prophecies in the Old Testament of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Look at verse 2 now. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So what's happening here is God is prophesying through Isaiah that since the northern tribes were the first to suffer from the Assyrian invasions, God in his mercy is going to let them be the first to see the light of the Messiah. In fact, Matthew's gospel records the fulfillment of this very prophecy. Jot down Matthew 4, verse 13 through 16. Speaking of Jesus, Matthew writes, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by, by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. Matthew four thirteen through 16 Great to see this, the prophecy fulfilled, and, and really it's safe to say these first two verses here in Isaiah 9 refer to our Lord's first coming. Then we get to verses 3 through 5, and I believe this shows uh, our Lord's His ministry. Look at verse 3. He says, You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So the ministry of the Messiah would bring great joy and gladness to Israel. In fact, Jesus likened His ministry to a, a, a great joyful time, to a wedding party. Matthew nine fourteen and 15. Remember when John the Baptist 
his disciples came to Jesus and asked him, hey, why do you Pharisees, why, why don't they, they fast often, you know? Or, you know, we fast often, but why do your disciples don't, don't fast? And Jesus said this, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, man, this is a time for rejoicing right now. I'm here among these people rejoicing with, because the Messiah is here. While Isaiah goes on, look at verse 5. It says, For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. See, each of these promises, the reference to great joy, the breaking of the yoke of his burden, the rod of his oppressor, the complete victory over all his enemies, has spiritual applications to Jesus' work in our lives. These things are ours in Jesus. And, and now the fabulous, now we come to the fabulous prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus. Look at verse 6. This is great. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I love this. This goes back to what's in a name. You know, George Stink, well, you know, the, everything's in a name. Each one of these names, each, each one of these titles that Isaiah gives to us concerning Jesus shows us something unique or different about his character, about his nature, about his purpose. Let's quickly just break these down. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. In other words, the story of Jesus coming into this world is not the story of a birth so much as the story of a gift. For unto us the entrance of Jesus Christ is come to this earth, but for God it was the departure of his son from heaven. Then he says, the government was, will be upon his shoulder. I'm sure President-elect Trump has already started feeling the government upon his shoulder. But in our text, Isaiah here is speaking of a future day, a day yet to come in which Christ himself will return to this earth to establish his kingdom. The shoulder speaks of strength. The government of this world will be placed on his strong shoulders, so, sho, shoulders at his second coming. It was not at his first coming goes on and his name shall be called wonderful i like that that word wonderful comes from the root word wonder it could be translated uh, amazement surprise astonishment awe admiration bewilderment and worship i like all those definitions because each one is a good reaction to what jesus did for us i'm amazed i'm surprised i'm astonished i'm in awe i admire him but i'm bewildered so i worship uh, you know, I, I'm in awe of the fact that God cared enough to, for me to send His Son to this earth to not only be born, but to die on the cross and bear my sins. It's wonderful. It's not inspiring. It's bewildering. It causes me to worship. Then he says, uh, he also sent him to be our, our counselor. Uh, he's our wonderful counselor. That, that takes care of our decisions in life. Psalm 73, 24 says, You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. So God wants to give us his counsel. God is interested in every details of our lives. I think so often we, we, we fly through life blindly trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do? I mean, what, what's going to happen? I don't know. I'm going to try this. I'll try that. And all the time as God is saying, hey, let me speak to you. I want to be your guide. I want to be your counselor. Open up my word. I want to speak to your heart. I want to be involved in your life. You know, people come to me for counseling from time to time and, and, and you know, they want that just that perfect pearl of wisdom that's going to solve all their problems instantly in order. And, and I wish were the case. You know, but, but you know, all I can do is point to the one who, who is the counselor, the one who knows how to put your life in order. 
That's what makes Jesus such a wonderful counselor. You know, you point him to his word. The Bible says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to each man generously. He'll not hold back. So what kind of problems do you have? Then come to the counselor who wants to speak to you. Again, that takes care of the demands of life. Sometimes we are overwhelmed with the problems and the challenges life brings us. Overwhelmed with the, with the responsibility of being a mom or a dad or being a, 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 you know, a wife or son or daughter, a good worker. Listen, the, this God who is wonderful is also the mighty God. In other words, He gives you the strength to do that's what He's called you to do. God's not going to ask you to do something. He's not going to give you the this, this strength to accomplish so maybe facing a problem tonight, right now, this mighty God is here. He's saying, I want to get involved in your life. I want to counsel you. I want to give you the power to follow that counsel. So he's not only our wonderful God or our mighty God, not only is he there to counsel us, but he is the everlasting Father, he goes on. Do you ever spend time wondering where God came from? Don't. It's a waste of time. <laughs> I mean, after you go back billions and billions of years, you're no closer to the origin of God than when you started. Everlasting means Forever. You know, no beginning, no end. The fact that God never arrived, He's always been there. We believe in a God that transcends time, yet yet penetrated time and space to make Himself known to us through Jesus Christ. That's why He's the everlasting Father. It takes care of the, the different dimensions that we have in our life. It's, it's a reminder to us that, 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 that life is not limited to what we experience on this earth. That life will someday come to a close for us here, but man opens up for us just the glorious hope of heaven. And then fifth and last day, Isaiah tells us he, his name is the Prince of Peace. I like that. That takes care of the disturbances in our lives. So often we get these storms coming in our lives and, and our trouble. And in this world we live, Jesus offers peace. He's the answer. He's the Prince of Peace. Well, now look at verse 7. Isaiah goes on. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah here is speaking of a future day, a day yet to come, a day in which Christ himself will return to this earth and establish his kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ, that thousand-year reign of Christ. We know he'll rule righteously as king of kings and lord of lords. And I tell you this, folks, I believe we, are, we, are, we are, have never been closer to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ than we are at this very moment in time. And we need to be those that, that are looking for his return, living our lives as if Jesus could return at any moment, because he could. Now this brings us back to the remaining verses of chapter 9, back to Isaiah's present time. Now again, remember in context, God has been using Isaiah to warn the people of Israel and Judah of the impending judgment, which will come upon them if they don't repent. He spoke to them of the future Messiah, but they're still not listening. And so in the remaining verses, he lays out the exact plan of why and how Israel will be destroyed. Look at verses 8 through 12. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries at resin against him and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away but his hand is stretched out still. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria refer to the people living in the northern kingdom of Israel. And, uh, and, and God is saying that, that uh, uh, what's going to happen to the northern kingdom of Israel. He had seen their response to the earlier judgments. They, they weren't humble. They weren't repenting. 
All they had was this pride and arrogance. God's not going to do anything to us. We can keep living the way they are. And every time God allowed attackers to bring destruction, he was hoping that they would turn to him. But they wouldn't. And instead, as it says here in verse 10, they just said, we'll make things stronger. We'll continue on in our sin. We'll rebuild with hewn stones. We'll replace them with cedars. Even though God was allowing them to come in and tear them down, he said, oh, we don't care. We're going to keep going the way we're doing. We're going to keep, you know, doing what we're doing. And so God is bringing more destruction upon them. You know, we talked about this Sunday when a believer continues in sin. And how God will, will do whatever it takes to get us to turn from our sin. But if we refuse, that can lead even to sickness, even to death. Something I needed to point out on Sunday that I didn't, we need to keep in mind that we're talking about a kind of discipline for our sins. Not every difficult time we go through is a result of sin. If you're sick right now, that doesn't mean necessarily that you've, you've refused to repent of a sin or something like that. It could just mean because you're, you're sick because you know, we live in a fallen world and, and, and filled with viruses and diseases and maybe you work with little kids all the time and you get sick all the time. And I don't know, Ron, but anyway... <laughs> But then, you know, if, 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 you know, if there's some sin in your life that you, you haven't been dealing with, and, and, and man, I wouldn't rule out the fact that the sickness is due to that. Again, as we looked at on Sunday, we need to pray. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, Israel, they weren't listening. So God used King Rezin of Syria to turn onto the northern tribe of Israel. Once they had this pact, they were going to go against Judah. Now all of a sudden, Syria is turning against the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, you know, and so when Israel allied with Syria, Syria's enemies became Israel's enemies. And so, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my enemy, not my friend, we see here. So Israel's destruction was coming not only from expected foes like the Philistines, but also from their alliance with Syria. Why? Because again, they would not turn on the Lord. They turned their back on the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Look at verse 13. For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and the honorable, he is, is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Again, even with the extra difficulties that God had placed on them and and the judgment he had placed on them, they still refused to turn to God. And so God says, man, my hand of judgment is still out there. Lord says here that he cuts off the head and tail from Israel. That means that from the highest position to the lowest one, God is bringing death. The highest position would be the, the elders, the leaders, those preceded as honorable men. The lowest position is that of the, the false prophet. But both of them, and everyone in between, were totally corrupt. The most honorable man in Israel was ripe for judgment, as was the young man and even the orphans and the widows. Why? Because he says everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. God has warned them over and over and over again. And they're not turning. And so God says, fine, it's time. You know, it's time, time has come. But there's more. Look at verse, these last verses, 18 to 21. He goes on, For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother, 
And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So he's saying wickedness is spread like a wildfire throughout the people of Israel, which tends to happen when it's unchecked. Now, Paul put it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. You know, and that's what was going on. The rising smoke here. They talked about the rising smoke here. Makes me think of how this must have smelt to God. You know, it's the direct opposite of the, the smoke which was pleasing to him as, as it ascended from the burnt offerings that were made earlier on. I mean, dozens of times in Scripture, the, the smell is described as a smoothing aroma to the Lord. That means that, that a restful, quiet, tranquilizing smell. Oh, the offering was just a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. But here, it's a smoke of wickedness that's ascending to the Lord. And instead of it being that sweet smell, it brought to him fury, and his fury burned like a fire hotter than their wickedness. And so God must judge. What was their wickedness? They didn't care about each other. There's no compassion for one another. It says they devoured one another, you know, which is just devouring yourself. They fought with each other. They fought against their brothers in the southern kingdom of Judah. Just that, that fighting, devouring, bicking. Centuries later, Paul saw this trend starting to rear its ugly head in the Christian church. And he warned the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 and 14. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think this is a great place for us to stop. There's more judgment coming in chapter 10. I'd rather stop in chapter 9 talking about love, being loved, having love one for another. We've been looking through that all of 1 John, you know, about how we need to have love one for another. And so tonight, as we see this whole thing kind of come together, we understand that if the Lord has laid on your heart some sin, something you need to turn from, man, we don't want to have hard hearts like, like Israel did. We want to soften our hearts. We want to look to the Lord. If you need help in anything, I mean, He's our wonderful counselor, mighty God. He gives us that Prince of Peace. And He's there to see us through. And we need to love one another as God has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us, Lord, out of this world to give us a life that is, that is just so exciting, Lord. A life spent with you on this earth and, and the hope of heaven. Father, help our hearts not to become hardened, Lord. Help us to have a hunger, Lord, to reach the youth, the, the, youth, the, the, the unsaved, Lord, that don't know you, Lord God. Pray, Father, that we pray for our country as we see the direction it's going, Lord. As we see the similarities between our country and, the, and Israel, Lord. As we turn our back against you and on you, Lord. And you've given us chance after chance. Lord, we pray for humility in our country. We pray that we would humble ourselves and turn from our wicked ways. Lord, we return back to you. Father, we pray for our... our uh, incoming president, Lord, that you would give him wisdom, Lord, first and foremost, that he would truly come to know you as Lord and as Savior. Father, but there would be uh, godly men, leaders raised up, Lord, to bring us back into that place of serving you 
and knowing you and to turn our country back on the right track. So we pray, Lord. We pray for the inauguration, Lord. We pray for peace during the inauguration. There's so much talk about riots and turmoil, Lord. We pray ahead of time for peace during that, Lord God. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Lord. We pray for Israel, Lord. We know your word tells us for that as well with the, the things going on right now. We thank you, Lord, that... We belong to you. We thank you that you have your hand on everything, Lord. We thank you that your word is proven, that it's true. You're a shield to those who trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.